Welcome. This is Karen Modakaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet. Do you ever feel hopeless or cynical about the changes in your life? You know where you want to go. You know you want to feel better, but you're not quite sure how to make it all happen. And you believe that you're working really, really hard to make these changes, but it's not happening. Today, I'm really excited to share my guest with you. She's a client who worked with me for a year, and I'm not saying that you have to work with me. What my intention is with this show is that it takes time. In this day and age where everything seems to be fast and easy, and it needs to be overnight, and consistently over the past almost 11 years, I have wanted to show you that it takes time to make changes and for you to be patient with yourself. I've also talked about how compassion is so important. And I've had Kristen Neff from University of Texas come on to the show. and We've talked about that. So today's guest is we're going to talk about how she was able to transform and the changes that she made and where how she's someplace different a year later to give you some insight and some evidence so that instead of beating yourself up thinking that this is all that's possible for you and you're stuck and it's hopeless, but to inspire hope in your own life and for you to remember to step out every day and practice. And if you continue to do that, you will in a year be in a different place. So I invite you to listen to this conversation with one of my clients, and I will circle back after the show. Susie, hello and welcome to my show. Thank you so much. I actually can't believe I'm here. (laughs) I can't believe it's been a year. Yeah, me either. I mean, just incredible how how it's flown. So... A year ago, we got started coaching and you started, you joined one of my programs and I want to ask, why did you, or I want you to share why you chose to start coaching? It's a great question. It, it was, I had been on my own personal journey of trying to figure out how to make the changes that I thought I needed in my life. And I realized I needed a partner. Um, and that partner really became clear to me that I wanted it to be you because I had listened to your podcasts for easily a year. And it just struck me one day, like, why am I not working with her? You know, what? And, and so I reached out after a few moments of, of having to muster up the courage um, and deal with some worthiness issues of, oh, she would never want to work with me. Um, and we found each other and, and I, it just became so clear to me that the partner I needed to figure out what was going on with where I was in life was really you. And I'm thrilled that we could make it, uh, make it happen. Okay. So that's the first I've ever heard of that, that there were worthiness issues and that I wouldn't want to work with you. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I, I listened to your podcast as if you were famous to me, if that makes sense. (laughs) I mean, you had so many great guests on and guests that I admire. And for me, it was thinking, you know, do I measure up? Do I measure up to the type of people that she works with on a regular basis? So, uh, but then at, the, at some point it said, it almost doesn't matter. I need her. So let's do this. <laughs> <laughs> and so now that we've been through this year together, do, do you see how 
you were a great client to work with? Um, humbly so, yes. You know, I don't know if I knew in the midst of it that um, that the work I was doing was matching, you know, our our agreement. Because um, to me, it was an up and down. Some days I felt really engaged, and other days I was like, "What am I doing? I signed up for this <laughs> <laughs> for a year." Um, for a whole year, which was brilliant, by the way, because halfway through, I might have said, um, yeah, I'm good. <laughs> well, and, and that was what one of the reasons I set up these year long agreements is it's to give my clients a container um, to do the work because it gets messy in there. And so they don't quit on themselves. Yeah, it's true, because it would have been easy for me at one point to walk away. Um, so I think it's well thought out that it's a full year engagement. So I appreciate that. So, yeah, I did love working with you. And it, was, it wasn't it was all easy. It was challenging. Oh, totally. It was challenging, right? But like, and I always say, we have to, there's beauty in the mess and there's the rumble. And through this coaching partnership, there was living through that. Mm-hmm, absolutely. You know, there were probably moments where we both hung up the phone going, oh, that wasn't fun. <laughs> <laughs> I just knew that you weren't like too happy with me, but I thought this is okay. We're on the right track. <laughs> no, no, but you know, it wasn't you. It was what I was discovering and you were the messenger more than anything. It mm-hmm. really wasn't, I wasn't happy with Corinne. It was more like, oh man, she's right. <laughs> I wasn't <laughs> happy with what you were right about. <laughs> so let's talk about um, what were the specific things that you were looking for a year ago? you know, and why you pursued coaching. Like, uh, I know you talked about having the podcast and, and wanting to make some changes and struggling to make them on your own, but what specific things? Yeah. So a year ago I was, um, about to turn 40 and I thought I had all of the makings of a beautiful life. I had a wonderful husband and a great home, a healthy, you know, one and a half year old. We were about to start um, to try and have our second kid. I had a career. I was really, you know, if you looked at the ingredients I had, I had the makings of, a, of everything I thought I wanted by the time I was 40. And yet I was so out of alignment with something. You know, I was I was not happy about the amount of time I was spending away from my daughter. I felt like I was handcuffed to um, the work situation that I had. And I just, I didn't know how to make the changes that I thought were needed to get myself in the right situation. And that's where I was. It was all external. It was, I needed to change my job. I needed to change the balance that I had um, or didn't have with my family life. Um, But I really came to this need to have coaching because I, I felt like I needed to make a huge change and was paralyzed by fear of making the wrong change. And what did you learn? <laughs> um, it had nothing to do with the situation. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the things you didn't really like in the beginning. No, you said to me, <laughs> point blank, you are not making a change in your career until you love what you're doing right now. Mm-hmm. And I was heartbroken. I mean, we were probably a month into coaching and I thought, well, that's never going to happen. I'm never going to love this situation. I'm never going to love leaving my daughter for 45, 50 hours a week and, you know, and having to come home and scurry through the the evening routine and then log back in and do more work. Who's going to love that? And so it was definitely one of those moments where it took me a while to get my, my head around the idea that this is not about the ingredients of the situation. 
it was about me. And that's, that's the one that's the hard one for people to understand that because we're always thinking, if I can change the external, if I can change the circumstances, then I can be happy, right? And one of the things that I say all the time is that if you can work with your mindset in the stories that you tell yourself, never a lie, never a lie, right? But really reframe how you think it. You can feel better about the given circumstance. And then when you can love where you currently are, it's really easy to leave. Like we think that we have to leave under horrible circumstances, but we can leave when the circumstances are great. We're like, Oh, this is wonderful. It's now time to end this and move somewhere else. Mm, Yeah. And what you really taught me was when you love where you are, you're rooted in compassion and you're rooted in confidence Mm -hmm. versus I was a year ago. I was very much rooted in fear and shame and scarcity And any decision I was going to make from that vantage point was not going to be the right decision. Um, Typically what people, like a lot of my clients, when they're rooted in fear and shame, they want to leave. They're trying to flee. Yes. Right. And, And the other problem that happens is that maybe the same people that you're having problems with at work, you think, oh, I'm going to go to this next company or this next job. And they won't be there. And you're right. That person won't be there. They'll just have a different name and a different face. Oh, completely. And I had lived through that. I've done the job changes thinking it was the external factors. Um, And I think that was why I didn't want to just make another change that on the surface looked like the right move if I was going to find myself equally unhappy, but just different circumstances. And I just, I didn't have all the right words to use a year ago, Mm -hmm. but that, that was really the driver for me to say, I'm not, I'm not really at a place to do this on my own. And, and the other thing was I didn't want to put other people in my life through having to figure this out with me. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted a really objective person who could, who could say things that would make me think differently. And that was really you and the role that I wanted you to play. Well, isn't it hard for family and friends to, um, to give you like, I mean, I think about a coach, right? We give you constructive feedback. We, we, um, I'll hold up a mirror for you, right? Versus a friend, we kind of need to be more cheerleaders or we have to do support in a different way or family members, right? Mm. Where you and I, it's in some ways, it's a lot cleaner. Absolutely. Yeah. And we talked a lot about the idea that if I'm sharing what I'm going through with someone, they are bringing into the situation their own stories mm-hmm. and the, the, the impact that maybe I, the change I would make would have on them. Mm-hmm. And, and that just was going to add complication to what I was trying to figure out. And, and with you, there was no judgment and there was no, um, there was no perspective that you were going to bring that would sway me in a different direction. Mm-hmm. You know, I think a, we, I learned through some of your podcasts and some of our discussions about what's my story versus maybe what are my parents' stories. Mm-hmm. Um, because my parents are really important to me and going to them at times was challenging because they have their own, you know, kind of point of view of where they are in life and what they want from me. So, yeah, so it was really about finding that person who could help me stumble through my thoughts and feelings without triggering some thoughts and feelings of their own. And I have a question. Was it you doing what I was telling you to do? Oh, no. <laughs> 
No. <laughs> um, it, no, uh, it was you asking me really thoughtful questions, which is some of those phone calls that I would hang up and be like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so no, never did you tell me what to do, but you would you would give me you would give me a way to think about things. And what was actually what was really interesting was in the beginning, I would just say stuff and you would say to me, well, was that a really good question to ask? You know, or is that the right question? Is, is that really how you want to choose to think about that situation? And I found myself, the shift was between, I would just say it and then you would reflect back for me what you heard. What really happened was I was able to start doing that for myself. You know, it was almost a little bit of what would Corinne say? <laughs> uh, but I started shifting that in my own mind where I would just, you know, say in my own mind something that I was thinking or feeling about a situation. And then, and then I would ask myself a question that you would ask me. And that's really what you gave. It wasn't you were telling me to do something differently, but you gave me a different way of approaching what was happening. It sounds like what you've been able to learn is how to reflect Oh, that. Yeah, for sure. And the compassionate observer. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I would reflect, but I would reflect and beat myself up. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, I would replay conversations in my head that I wish I could go back and do differently, or I would perseverate on something that was coming up um, and to it to a point where it was, you know, unproductive. So it was the reflection, but it was that, oh, look at that that's how I'm feeling and then not having judgment about it. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about it. I didn't it. do that. Well. <laughs> when, when I first introduced you to compassion observer and you've been a listener of my show, so you've probably heard it before, but uh, did you believe that compassion could be a big motivator for change? No, I didn't understand that. You know, to me it was always setting these big bold goals that meant that you were uncomfortable and almost stressed out. You know, the, the sprinting the last you know, mile of a, of a race type thing. Um, so, no, the, that, didn't, that didn't totally click. And that's partly why also, you know, listening to podcasts and reading was only helpful to a degree. I needed someone to help me actually do it. And so, yes, I had heard the words compassionate observer many times on your podcast, but it didn't, I didn't know how to actually do that. Well, it's counterculture what we've been taught. Yeah. Right. Because what we've been taught is beat the crap out of yourself. Just work yourself to a grind and then you'll be successful. Right. Right. And in this idea of being a compassionate observer, you know, I in sessions, it's you might say something and I, I probably would have called you and said, well, that's not compassionate. Right. Right. <laughs> And, and it's, it's, it's amazing because that like for me, it was a, it was something that I had to learn, right? Cause I was really good at beating myself up and that whole idea that compassion is the biggest motivator for change. But how much more, you know, we use so much less energy when we come from being rooted in compassion and we show up and do our work versus when we beat ourselves up and all the drama and the brain juice we use when we're in that state. Right. Well, and if I wasn't being compassionate with myself, I certainly wasn't being compassionate with other people. Ooh, say more about that. Uh, Yeah, if I think about, you know, if I couldn't give myself a little latitude and give myself a little bit of a a chance to reflect and, and, and see what I wanted to do differently, there was no way that I was doing that with the people closest to me or the people at work. So... My lack of self-compassion, it's not like it was showing up magically towards other people. 
Yeah. So it's that idea you can't give what you don't have. Yeah. Right. You know, and I've thought a lot about how I was really doing so much to try and control the external factors, the external mm-hmm. situations, what people thought of me that, and it wasn't working, you know, the perfectionist sort of mindset, uh, that it wasn't until I started focusing more inwardly on me, whether it's that self-compassion piece or other aspects that it then started happening externally and things started shifting and I wasn't even, I was no longer focused externally, but then that is what changed. Mm-hmm. That That's really what's powerful. So if we can put a little bit um, more description to it for the listeners, like a year ago, weren't you like, <sighs> there was fear and there was shame and there was like, I'm not worthy and I'm not valuable to my company. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and then it was about you owning your own value. Oh, completely. I was looking so much for that validation from everyone else, whether it was my boss or somebody else to tell me I was doing a good job. And then I, I wasn't getting it. And, mm-hmm. and it, and it's not that I wasn't doing a good job. It's that nobody was telling me that. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm almost 40 years old. Why do I need someone else to tell me that I'm doing a good job? Am I like 12 back at home? (laughs) But that's what was happening is I just I wasn't seeing for myself that what I was doing was valuable. Mm -hmm. Um, And because of that, I was seeking it from other people. And when I wasn't getting it from them either, it was just the spiral. And then didn't you use that as evidence for why you needed to leave? Yes, absolutely. Right? Yeah. Because that would then solve the solution. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, if they don't think I'm valuable, I'll go somewhere where they do think I'm valuable. But then I was still going to carry the lack of worthiness with me. And so that wasn't going to get solved. And so how did you learn that you were valuable and that the work that you did was a value to your company? Oh, that took us a while. Um Actually, I think I think a lot of it was being compassionate towards the people that I wanted to give me that validation and saying, they've got their own stories. They've got their own things they're working out. Life is not all about you, basically. <laughs> Darn it. Um, and so I think it took me saying, this isn't about them not telling me what I need. This is about me not needing them to tell me that. But it took a long time. It took it took you, you know, sharing with me what you were hearing, in the words I was using, and you know, and you might even remember it more clearly than I do how the shift happened. Uh, but it really became more about, hey, you own your own business, and don't take on their business, mm-hmm. and don't, you know, don't look for them. If you believe in the work that you're doing, and the, then you believe in what you bring to the table, um, then the rest will follow. But I, I honestly can't remember what the actual shift was. I don't know if you remember <laughs> what we worked through. One of the things was was going back into your own business and not looking for the approval of other people. And then really going in yourself and checking in with, do I do valuable work? Right. Mm. What, you know, is this good work? And that's the hard thing because we don't want to be arrogant, right. And puff up and, you know, um, so we tend to make ourselves small, but for you to really look at, okay, what am I doing? And does it create value for the job that I'm doing and really being able to own that and understand how you contribute to the whole. Um, 
you know, it's interesting. I'm I'm getting ready for another interview about the power of meaning, meaning, mm. meaning making. And there was a great story about when JFK went to NASA and um, he ran into a custodian there and he asked him, he said, oh, so what do, what do you do here? And he said, I'm helping get a man on the moon, right? Because he realized how important his job was to take care of so that the other people could take care of their jobs. Right. And I mean, talk about just really understanding it. He was part of the team because we're all connected. Sometimes we forget about that because we get so into status, right? And what our titles are and what our roles are. And do I really contribute instead of understanding that we're all connected and there's an, there's a piece that we are part of this puzzle that helps the overall mission. Right. So here's somebody, you know, the, the big glorious put a man on the moon and here's the president of the United States. And he, this man is just as important as custodian because he's taking care of stuff that helps the whole team. Mm, absolutely. No, it's true. And, and recognizing that is, is definitely a part of that compassion observers self-reflection. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did a lot of talk around that, the perfectionist piece that I had that the, mm. I only knew that I was, that the work I was doing was valuable when it was perfect mm-hmm. and, and I could never achieve it. Perfection. It was just never something I was, I was accomplishing. And so we did a lot around, Hey, you can be, you know, you, you don't have to be perfect to be amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked a lot about the growth mindset and Carol Dweck's work um, and, and getting me to a place of confidence that it would be okay if I made a mistake. Mm-hmm. Like I, I had a really hard time making mistakes. Mm-hmm. So when, when you have a hard time making mistakes, what would you do? How would you show up if you're afraid to make mistakes? I wouldn't take a lot of chances. I wouldn't, I would, I would not seek feedback from others. I would probably be very defensive mm-hmm. because I'd feel the need to, to explain to somebody, you know, why whatever I thought was the right thing was the right thing instead of recognizing like, Hey, I had an idea it contributed to the greater conversation and it, and it morphed into a different outcome. Um, than the one that I had come to the table with. But that didn't mean that what I suggested was wrong, for example. But yeah, I was definitely showing up in a way that was not not helping me make connections with others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and perfection's the birthplace of shame, right? Yeah. So if you're already not believing that you're worthy and then you're striving for perfection and you're just adding more shame to your current situation. Yes, there's definitely a lot of shame. <laughs> <laughs> We say it, you know, you and, and Brene say it, ride shotgun. I said it was in the driver's seat. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it gets, it so gets in the way and it creates so much extra drama in our lives, doesn't it? Yeah, we talked a lot about that. Like, hey, do you realize the thoughts that you have is the drama? It's not the situation. Um, and that, that's where I had to do a lot of work to decouple what was the situation? What was the fact? What was indisputable versus what was my view of the situation? They were very intermingled for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when we used words like, you know, living in the drama or indulging in the drama, <laughs> uh, you know, or the emotional child, those are the calls that I would hang up and be like, <laughs> <laughs> she's so right. <laughs> um, so it's, yeah, there's so much that, um, that I didn't realize how much I was contributing through my own thoughts. Well, I I kept blaming the outside world. 
Yeah. And it's, and it's not about blaming yourself, right? Because we grow up, we get conditioned to learn how to operate in a certain way. And, and, you know, uh, I will have tantrums about things. One of my other clients who we did a show a couple weeks ago, she, you know, talked about having her tantrums and, and those are the shit storms that we go through, right? When we're doing our work, it, that's why it doesn't have to be perfect. We think, oh, if I'm doing it perfectly, I'm on this nice paved road. Everything is clear. It's all happening the way it's meant to be, right? Instead of realizing even in the Wizard of Oz, when Dorothy's going to see Oz and she's on that yellow brick road, there's a whole bunch of stuff. She goes through shit storms all the time. Right. That's really how it happens. Even when you're living an amazing life, there are shit storms to go through. There's rumbling, you know, there's disagreements there. We can have our pity parties. And the big thing is, is that, and I've always said this to you, is that when you do this work, it's not that you'll never feel shame again. It's just that you know how to move through it. That, yes. And I would say that is definitely where I am at this point. It's, I'm not living a life without shame. I'm living a life where I know what to do with it now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I don't know what to do with it, you gave me permission to just sit with it for a little bit. You know, it's not, it, it doesn't mean I have to fix it. Mm-hmm. And, and kind of give into it because one of the other thoughts I had or feelings was I used to feel like the moments of joy were fleeting, but the moments of, uh, you know, negativity were permanent. <laughs> and, and so when I would get into those moments of, of shame or shit storms or whatever, I would, I would feel like, oh, this is never going to change. This is how life really is. And you've helped me see maybe it's the compassionate observer piece that be like, oh, this is where I am right now couple moments later maybe I'll be in a different place and if not then I'll keep moving through it so it, it is funny that it's a different story that that goes through my head now when I have these these moments because well, the moments didn't go away <laughs> yeah the moments don't go away and that's an example of being an emotional child right when we think this is going to be like this forever because when we're a kid that's all our capacity is right yeah. we think oh my gosh it's going to be like this forever or you know Christmas isn't going to come. We all know Christmas will be here sooner than we can all believe it, right? When we're adults, but when we're a child, everything seems so heightened. And, and so it's never to, you know, slam us. It's just to realize like, oh, I'm in this part of myself right now. And, and when I'm in this place, how am I showing up in my life? How is, how is where I'm in my thought process affecting how I view the world? Right. And that's showing up, <clears throat> showing up in my life was a big thing to talk about, too, because I kept thinking, well, nobody knows what's inside my head. Well, you're right. They don't. but They can see it. They can see it in how you are behaving. And, and even if they don't know exactly what it is, you're just emanating something that they either do or don't want to be close to. Mm-hmm. So when you don't believe you're valuable in your workplace, how are you showing up? Like I'm not valuable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, I'm questioning myself, I'm questioning others, I'm, I lack confidence, and it shows. And then someone might say, well, wow, she's not even confident in what she's saying, maybe it's not valuable. Mm-hmm. So it definitely becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. And, and so what I remember is about, we kind of hit about seven months or the end of six months, and that became kind of your tipping point where... The like whether it was the resistance or it was like things just started to click for you in this partnership that you and I had. Mm, that's true. 
Yeah, it was it was definitely halfway through, which is why you do a year long. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and it was it, it was almost like a bunch of concepts that we had been talking about were coming together all at once. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't any one thing that was said or one thing that was done. It was more like, okay, I see the role that playing a uh, compassion observer has. I see what it means to be an emotional child and choosing to not be one. I, I get that I can, I am the one who can influence my feelings through my thoughts. Um, and there were other things that we kept hitting on too. And they just, it, it was, it was almost like the, the puzzle started to, to come together. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we spent six months of putting all the puzzle pieces on the table and I started to really see how they came together probably halfway through. And well, and also understanding shame and how shame operates, because that's probably the big piece that culturally we don't talk about. We just like, oh, shame, let's not talk about that. Right. And that's been the beauty of Brene Brown's work is for her to bring it out there and put it out where we're having discussions now about what is shame. And when we don't talk about shame, right, it festers and it grows. But when we can talk about it again with the right people, the people who earned the right to hear our stories it can actually dissolve. True. And naming it and even knowing the right language to use. Mm-hmm. I think through our work, I started to get, uh, I started to also watch more of things happening around me. Um, and, and you do, you see shame everywhere and you don't have permission to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it was, and it was enough for me to have the language for myself. I didn't feel the need to now go around and talk to him and be like, wow, did you notice how much shame you were triggering in that staff meeting? (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't going to go do that, but. (laughs) But then it's also easier to work with people too, because you start to see that, oh, they're going gladiator right now because they're in shame, right? Right. Where in versus like, oh, what did I do wrong? It's like, oh, they're in shame right now. They're going gladiator. And, and then we, the antidote of shame is, I'm going to be compassionate and have empathy for them instead of my go-to, which would be, let me go gladiator right back on you. Yeah, I'll show you. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's true. And that's actually a good point that it, with this language and the concepts we were using, it really stopped being about me anymore. And I was able to kind of look at people in a different way. Maybe it's compassionately, um, but look at people differently and not take it on. Um, and say, oh, well, they're reacting that way because of something I said or something I did. When in reality, it, it really had nothing to do with me. Mm-hmm. And and all of this, like, I just want the listeners to realize, like, there's always this checking in to see, like, what is our truth, right? And then also checking in with people who've earned the right to hear our story of, okay, what this is what I'm seeing, you know, how, what are you seeing? And so it could be like, you know, in terms of, you know, okay, I believe my work is valuable and you go out there and then there's, there were also feedback that you got within your company of, yeah, your work is valuable, but it wasn't from the approval whoring way. It was just like, you were so excited about this new work that you were doing inside your company. And then the conversations were coming about and then people were seeking your counsel. Yeah, talk about a shift. Yep. <laughs> when I first started working with you, I was in a role where I felt like I wasn't, I wasn't contributing because either I didn't see my value and or I wasn't getting much feedback that it was valuable. 
And, and that didn't sit well with me. So I just started saying, well, what do, what do I want people to say about me? And, and how do I need to act differently so that that's how they would say what I'm looking for them to say? And then it became, well, what, don't I want to say that about myself too? So again, it, it, what I thought was an external solution really needed to be resolved internally. And so what that meant was I just started inviting more and more conversations and I showed up. I didn't know this at the time. I think it's changed how I showed up. So then I, I found the right people. Maybe it's the example of your elevator where you start at the bottom with a bunch of people in the elevator. They all get off on your way up and then they get replaced by people as you go. You can explain that analogy a little better than I can. But I started just being around people that were seeing the work that I did as valuable, but because I was seeing it as valuable. And that it's hard for me to separate the, the situation from what I was feeling. So if there's more we can share for the listeners, I'm happy to do that. Well, because you were fired up and excited. And I mean, you had a belief that the work, the type of work that you wanted to do would never be um, supported in your in your company. Right. right. And you're like, oh, no, I have to leave if this is what I want to do. <laughs> and I kept saying, well, we kind of had a deal. <laughs> you're yeah. going to stay. Right. Yeah. We're going to stay yeah. and work this out. And then you can leave if you want. Um, and I would just remind you, I mean, I'm never the boss of you, so I don't tell you what to do. But I just remind you of like the commitments that you've made or in some <laughs> earlier session. <laughs> and then you, in some you know, calm states of mind. <laughs> <laughs> and you may not be happy of these reminders, but that was what you had agreed to do. But then when you started to like, just start planting seeds and having conversations with people within your company, you started to realize that, oh, wow, people are interested. And at first, may they may not have even understood, but then they became interested. And then, you know, other people in the company started seeking you out. And then and what back in the late spring, early summer, I want to say May, June, right? Somebody else from corporate reached out to you because they wanted your advice on that um, thing that they were putting together, right? And you're like, right. look, they're calling me about this. Right. Right. right? Which, yeah, no, it, it is, it is, it was a revelation. And I think it does come back to you, right? I was in a role where I wasn't doing the, the work that I felt was that I could really give to the organization and, and be passionate about, but there was no job with that title. Mm -hmm. So I assumed it didn't exist. And so to your point, I just kept talking to people and kept trying to just show what I could do and planted it was a good six or eight months worth of planting seeds. And then all of a sudden someone said, well, let's make the position. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. So they literally created the position for me that I'm now in. <laughs> and and I here I thought I had to leave. Like crazy. <laughs> yeah. Last fall you're like, no way, Corinne, this is this it's not gonna be possible here. That they don't have this job here. Right. Right. And and then, you know, like in February, I think there was the creation of that job, the position yeah. and, you know, and there was the talking and, and there was a transition period. And that's the other thing is that I, I, I often find my clients come to me and I'm always like, look, I am not the fairy godmother, right? right. I'm not the fairy godmother. It's not bippity boppity boo. But if you practice, if you commit and you practice, change will happen over time. And, and I, I like to say, you know, small hinges can move big doors. And your journey in this last year is a lot of small hinges moving the big doors. Mm, I think that is true for sure. 
Well, and to your point, I had a choice a year ago to get a career counselor and invest my money in someone who could help me change my career or to work with you as a coach. And that's where I knew this wasn't just about changing the career. And I don't think that person could have helped me move into a role that didn't exist in this organization and, you know, kind of get people on board with creating it. I think they would have, I would have had a lot of great action items about what to do with my career. But in reality, I wanted, I wanted that holistic approach. And I believe it was that holistic life coaching that was more important and yielded better results than if I had focused on only one arena. Well, and that's about like, you were rooted in shame, right? And I always talk about on the show of, we have to be rooted in love and compassion or rooted in confidence. And then we take action from there. And so Mm -hmm. a lot of times when we're changing a job, if we're still rooted in shame, we're just dealing, we're addressing the symptom. We're not addressing the root problem, right? Yes. And so often the root problem for all of us is shame, right? When it's 85% of us that are feeling shame, which is the voice of I'm not enough. And it carries in it's, I don't have enough time. I don't have enough money. I'm not enough. I'm not a good enough employee. Whatever the story may be, it's that I'm not enough. We all have it. And then when we can learn how to move through it, not, you know, like I like in shame with my East Coast clients is you all know how to deal with snowstorms and living your life, <laughs> right? Like I don't, I wouldn't even understand that. Like I get frustrated when there is ice on the you know, if I don't, if I take my car out of the garage and I leave it out overnight and there's ice on the windshield, I'm like, really, this is so difficult. <laughs> right. But, and so in that sense, like I wouldn't be considered very shame resilient because, or I'm not very weather resilient is always my story versus my clients who live on the East coast and are dealing with snow on a daily basis. And so that's what shame resilience is that, oh, okay, like, of course, I still go to work when there's snow out there. I don't stay home versus if I were to go to the East Coast, I'd be like, I don't know what to do. I guess I have to sit here. <laughs> yeah, we still complain about it, but you're right. We go to work. <laughs> yeah. You go to work and then you understand. I remember I was in Ohio for nationals and swimming when uh, I think it was my junior. I was so excited because after, you know, I raced, I was going to get to go eat and have a big old party in my mouth and, you know, because... I wouldn't eat certain things when I was in training and they announced over the loudspeaker that uh, there was a snowstorm. And so everything was shut down. I go, what do you mean? Everything shut down. The restaurants are still open, right? <laughs> I couldn't believe that things got shut down. I thought, Oh my gosh. So we had to like go back to the hotel and eat just like hotel food. Um, and it wasn't like a great hotel that we're seeing cause we were college swimmers. But um, I, I, I think about that of how do you move through it instead of, not knowing what to do. Like I didn't know what happens in snowstorms. I wouldn't know what to do. I wouldn't even know how to get prepared, but you would know how to get prepared in that. Mm. And that really is a great analogy. I mean, I was in so many shame snowstorms, Mm -hmm. but I didn't know it. I didn't have the language. I didn't have, I didn't have the resourcefulness to, to even address what was happening. I think the language was really helpful too. Mm -hmm. And, And that understanding. And now can you can you feel confident in your ability to feel shame and move through it? More so. I think that's going to be something I will continue to to make sure that I can learn how to do that. I don't think I'm fully bright there, but yes. <laughs> well, and it's a practice. It's an ongoing practice. Yeah. Right? Like it, it's like for me to be a swimmer, I mean, I can't swim the way I did 25 years ago. You know, but if I fall into a pool, I can get across the pool. And if I wanted to 
you know, uh, be better at swimming, I would have to actually get in and practice swimming again. Right. And so for us to always realize that it's a practice of shame resilience. Mm, for sure. Right. And I find as I go into new arenas and I'm like, oh, this is vulnerability. I don't like this. Yeah. <laughs> right. It, it just, it's, and I remind myself of that. And I remind, I check in with the stories that are popping up that my shame gremlins like to have. Then I go, oh, well, that's not true. Right. Like my, you know, limiting belief is I'm a loser. Well, that's not true. I can figure things out. I may not want to figure this out. I may want some white knight to come and save me, but really I don't. Right. Cause I like right. to be the boss of me. So I, and yep. I remind myself that I give myself perspective, which is empathy, which is the antidote of shame. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And it, and it's been interesting for me to see just how physical shame is. And that's mm-hmm. those physical reactions is what I use to check in. Uh, and that checking in has been really powerful because it does help me then say, well, wait a minute, what's fact and what's, what's the story I'm telling myself about the fact. Um, cause it, that, that has been a helpful tool. Cause we're really good at creating drama in our brain, aren't we? Oh yeah. It's kind of fun sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we get a dopamine hit. I mean, that's actually what happens to our bodies. So whatever stories we tell ourselves, like our brain doesn't like white space. And so as soon as we tell ourselves a story, it's like, oh, that's of course the answer. I'm a loser. You know, my name is Corinne and I'm a loser. Like, you know, it doesn't make sense to anybody else, but in my brain, it makes sense and my brain rewards me. And that's where it gets confusing. Yeah, absolutely. Because it does feel good. So having this ability to have shame resilience, it doesn't mean that we don't feel shame. And then the other thing is realizing that like, oh, you know, while we're not, we may have this pursuit for happiness. I can feel shame. And it's not going to take me down, right? Yeah, and it's not permanent. Mm-hmm. You know, and in a way, it helps me feel the happiness more when I do have it, and not take that for granted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because so often I think the perfectionism, right, which is armor, is to say, oh, like if I just perfect, if I look perfect, do it perfect, act perfect, then I'm never going to feel this god awful thing of shame. Right. Right. So we're right. so afraid of this feeling when really, if we just allow ourselves to feel it, we can move through it. True. Yeah. Yeah. And just to even be able to say, wow, this is shame. Yeah, it sucks. Oh, okay. Look here. I feel better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, without, without the judgment of, oh, I shouldn't be feeling this shame right now. Mm-hmm. It's like the 60th, 60th day of a harsh winter. Like really <laughs> don't want to be doing <laughs> yeah. this again, yeah. but like knowing that, okay, spring will come. Right. Yeah, and then when spring comes, like if you're in New England, everybody goes out on the first nice day of spring, and it's just you're so much more appreciative of that day of spring, mm-hmm. having gone through what what you went through in the winter. And that's an example. Brene will say, like, you can't feel the good if you're not willing to feel the bad, right? Yeah. We need to feel all of our feelings. We just don't need to pitch a tent and build a campfire and live in the swampland. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> True, true. So you can have my tent if you want. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> so here you are a year later. Yeah. And you have not left your job, right? right? And you've been able to create a new position that wasn't even in existence to do work that's more aligned mm-hmm. and own your own value. Yes. A year ago when you started, did you think that this was possible for you? No, not at all. 
a year ago when I started, I assumed we were launching on a journey to change everything around me. And in aside from a slight change in the work that I'm doing, nothing around me has changed, but yet everything is different. And where are you on your happiness level? Oh, you know, I it's it's there. I feel really calm and confident and um, excited about what's ahead, even though what's ahead is is pretty unknown. Um, and so, from a happiness standpoint, it's yeah, I I just feel really good. Mm-hmm. And and it doesn't mean that there aren't difficult days or there aren't stressors, right? Because there's all of that. It's real life but you can move through it. Yes, absolutely. And, and I have confidence that I can handle what comes. What was really gripping me a year ago was that I didn't actually believe that whatever changes I was going to do, that I would be successful at it. And I thought that change was so permanent that I was putting such pressure to make the one and only right change I was ever going to get to make again. Mm-hmm. And now it's, and you've really kind of taught me that Okay, make a decision, make a choice. If it's not the right one, make another choice. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, I didn't have that perspective a year ago, and um, and so I think this this ability to check in and to really see, hey, did I make a good choice? And and if not, what am I going to do about it? And knowing that I am going to do something about it. So. Yeah, it's it's so freeing when you realize like it's not permanent. You can, Mm -hmm. you can change your mind, but sometimes we just have to test things out because we don't really know how it's going to be. Right. You know, and we, I used to have the, well, you know, what's the worst that could happen? And you've shifted me to say, well, why don't you be committed to the best possible outcome? You know, why are you even willing to spend a moment thinking about the worst possible outcome? Mm -hmm. How is it to shift to that? I'm working with a lot of clients on that. Like, come on, let's be committed to the best possible case. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's good. And it, I've got some work to do in that space because then I, I feel like I'm being, it's like we say, we don't want to tell ourselves lies. Like, oh, I can quit my job and I'll win the lottery. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, no, let's, let's be real. Um, let's make sure we're making, taking the right actions. Um, but it is so much more interesting and fun to think about what could be and to imagine the possibilities. Mm-hmm. So it's it's something that I'm actively working on doing, and I don't do it perfectly every time. And there's that word perfect again. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's I just like it a lot better. I like the thoughts in my head a lot more when I'm focused on, oh, man, imagine what it would be like if I did have you know, the flexibility that I'm really looking for or imagine what it could be like instead of, well, you know, this is what it might, what might happen. Just a much better movie to watch. <laughs> well, Susie, thank you so much for coming and sharing your story. Oh, well, Corinne, I, I can't thank you enough for the entire year we've had together. And these, even these last few minutes have just continued to help me with my own thoughts and, and feelings around everything. Well, and remember, it's always an ongoing practice, right? You get to practice and and we get to do it imperfectly and we will screw up and we will be emotional children. We will get stuck in shame storms. But when we realize that, okay, we can move out of this and in also allowing ourselves to be with ourselves in those moments, right? And in giving ourselves, like you said earlier, the permission to not have to be able to figure it out right now. 
like giving ourselves that space to say, okay, I will figure this out. And right now I'm just sad or right now I'm in fear or right now I'm in shame and I will move through this, but this is where I am right now. Yes. Yeah. All right, Susie. Well, I'm excited for you for your next chapter. Uh, Me too. Thanks so much, Corinne. Thank you. All right. So the key components to make the changes you want to see in your life, because it's possible. It really, really is possible. The first one is you have to commit, commit, make a commitment. Now don't, it doesn't need to be, um, sometimes we make these big, hairy, audacious goals, and then we just feel like failures because we're in this voice of, do I measure up? Who do I think I am? I'm not enough. It's a really hard place to go from there. So instead of saying like, I want to be an Olympian, how about, okay, I want to commit to exercising five minutes a day or 10 minutes a day, or I'm going to go swim three times a week because I want to get stronger. Focus on that. Whatever the commitment is that you want to make, make sure it's sustainable and it's the next step. Don't try to think that you're going to leapfrog to the end of, oh, I want to be an Olympian and bypass all these steps because all those steps is actually what gets you to be an Olympian. That's just for my example of you. So commit and then you have to practice. And when we practice, we fall down. Yes, we do. It's not fun. It can be embarrassing. It can trigger shame inside of us. It's part of the process. And if we can just remember that and remember that when we are committing, when we are practicing, this is us daring. I have to practice daring in my own life in arenas where I feel really vulnerable. And I just remind myself, this is my work to do. Once I get through this and I, once I can dare in this, in this arena, I will evolve myself to the next level of me. And what you are daring yourself to do, there's no need to judge it. There really isn't because we all have our vulnerabilities and we all have our triggers. And it's about practicing that. And it goes back to, if you remember learning how to drive, for me, that was about 30 years ago. And it was so scary to make a right-hand turn. I can vividly remember that. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm going so fast, making this right-hand turn, going five miles an hour. The reality is now I make right-hand turns all the time and I really don't think about it. That's what happens when you show up and you do your work. That's what happens as you evolve into the best version of yourself. And here's the thing. This is so important. When we talk about evolving to the best version of yourself, it's already inside of you. You have it. We've just learned to disconnect from it. We've learned that maybe it's not good enough. We've learned all these outside stories and beliefs to take us away from ourselves. And really what we're doing is Martha Beck would call it is we're going back to our essential selves. We're going back inside. And as you go inside and you really evolve to your best version of yourself, of who you really are. What happens is, and I like to use this, this idea of an elevator, you're on this elevator right now before you transform. And there's a lot of people on there. You've collected them through the years, all kinds of people, people that maybe you don't really want on the elevator. And as you evolve to the next version of yourself, people start to get off the elevator. They don't want to be there anymore. Sometimes they may say, you know what? You're too much or I don't like you, or you're to this, and that's okay. Let them go, wish them well, and things well, be kind. And it gets really vulnerable because at one point in that elevator, you're going to be all alone. 
And that is scary. And that's when you trust yourself and realize that as you continue to evolve, the right people are going to come on the elevator. And that's where the beauty is. And that's where Susie, Susie got it too. And her people didn't really change. She was able to finally see the people that were in the elevator. So use that image as you go through your transformation. Remember that committing and practice is so important. The other thing that's really important is the ability to reflect, the ability to own your story and love yourself through that process. So when you fall down, when you make mistakes, when you think, oh, I shouldn't have said that, or, oh, I really messed up here, own it, reflect on it. What can you learn from this? How is this going to help you next time? And then what happens is that you can create a growth mindset within yourselves. And this also helps you develop your own resilience. And you just need to know what the next step is. You may not need to know, you may not know the whole plan. A lot of times my clients on day one, they're like, okay, where am I going to be on day 300? They're not going to know that, but it's about trusting and having faith and you're taking the next step. What is the next step? And when it's time to go right, and this was one that I had to really learn. And for a former control freak who'd like to have the next 50 years of her life planned out, this was really hard. I blew my mind. When it's time to go right, you go right. And how do you know you go, it's time to go right? Because you're present in the here and now. When I was planning out my life for the next 50 years, I wasn't present. I wasn't there in the moment. I was someplace else. So I wasn't even paying attention to when it was time to go right. I drive right past it. When you live in the here and now, when you practice reflecting, you will learn and you will see when it's time to go right. And that is the critical thing. So if you're listening in the fall of 2017, I'm opening up a new group coaching program this fall called Enough. And it's for those of you who are struggling with making commitments to yourself and honoring those commitments and following through. If you're really good at doing it with yourself or having a friend and following through, that's fantastic. You go rock on. For those of us who are like me, and I have a workout group that I work out with because while I could do the exercise on my own, it's way more fun to do it with other people. And I'll work harder with somebody pushing me because I want to have a coach in my life in the physical realm. And I'm willing to be your coach in your mindset, in the stories that you tell yourself, asking you those hard questions like Susie talked about in the show. I'm a master certified life coach and a trained Daring Way facilitator in Brene Brown's work. In the past few years, I've worked primarily one-on-one with my clients as they did their own shame work. And shame is the voice of, I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. And my clients worked on loving themselves, practicing self-compassion, cultivating belonging in their life while letting go of perfections and the voices of not being enough. In fact, one of my clients, her goal was to become her own best friend. And the reason that's so important is that when you're your own best friend, you're going to call yourself on your faults and you're going to be so supportive so that you can be courageous in your life and be willing to challenge yourself and dare greatly in your life. So if you have the voice of, I'm not enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not pretty enough, I'm not thin enough, strong enough, smart enough, this group protein program, will we will be working on that to remove those voices as you move towards your worthiness, self-love, and self-compassion 
it could be a great fit for you. If you're ready to finally let go of your story of not being whatever blank enough, you will want to be part of my new group coaching program. Go to the link in the show notes and sign up to be the first to know about the Enough Group Coaching Program because it's coming very soon. I'm so excited. It's going to be an awesome year with a group of fantastic people. All right. Until next time, I'm smiling big for you. Thank you so much for listening today. On a lake, she is dreaming, she is drifting, never been so wild.